In this edition of the Features Work podcast, I sat down with Catherine Trebek, author along with Jeremy Williams of a new book called The Economics of Arrival, published by Bristol University Press. In this book, they challenge the idea that big is better and that growth is good, and instead argue that most developed countries have arrived, and instead of enlarging the economy, we should focus on improving it. I opened our discussion by asking Catherine why herself and Jeremy decided to write this book, and why specifically now. So, so the book in a way snuck up on us. Uh, there was never some huge burning motivation that Jeremy and I thought, right, we must write a book. We just started discussing things that started to crystallize into a few ideas that we wanted to expand on and explore a bit more and, and dive into. And so it almost sort of like, oh, hang on, there, there's a book here. <laughs> and and I'd been working with Oxfam for a while and had been increasingly conscious that all the amazing work that organizations like Oxfam and others were doing in community groups around around the world to try and support those experiencing extreme poverty were really up, running up against it if we're not having a conversation about the economic models in, for want of a better term, the global north. If we weren't critiquing the the economic models in places like the US and the UK and Canada and, and France and so on, if we weren't saying there is a very deep connection between how those economies operate and essentially the, the life chances of our friends and cousins around the world. And so having that international development background and focus in a way heightened my sense that where where I wanted to be working and looking and critiquing and, and advocating for change was actually in the economic models of the rich world. And, and so this book became almost emerged as a bit of a platform or a way to weave together some of those ideas and, and the conversation around that. So with, with you two specifically, then, how did you two kind of get to meet each other? So you're Australian, uh, yeah. based in Scotland, based in uh, like a, a, a researcher, and Jeremy is kind of like an activist. So how did you two kind of get into the room at the same time and go, OK, let's <laughs> we've got some good ideas here. Let's let's write a book. So it's almost like we were set up on a blind date, by <laughs> a, a sort of mutual friend of ours who I actually hadn't met physically, um, but a guy called Donnie McClurkin, and Donnie's this incredible, energetic, actually an Australian, but lives in lives in Oregon, and he has set up something called the Post-Growth Institute, of which Jeremy is one of the founding founding members, and so Donnie and I were having a bit of Twitter banter, and then oh, let's have a chat, and so Donnie and I had a, had a Skype call, and he just said, look, next time you're in London, you've got to meet this guy, Jeremy, you and Jeremy will have loads to talk about. And I had, I just sort of really, and it's a very Australian thing to do the connections and actually mean it. You know, so I know sometimes Brits do, oh, you must meet this person and things will never actually happen. But Aussies are, yeah, I'll, I'll go meet this person. So, so I got in touch with Jeremy and we arranged to have lunch and we got on really, really well. Jeremy's a really gentle, very engaging, very thoughtful person. And it was actually at that very first lunch where he just almost, um, he sort of almost just as a, a remark in passing said, rich countries need to recognise that they've arrived. And and when he said that, it <laughs> it sort of helped a lot of things that have been piece, sort of buzzing in my mind almost fell into place. It was almost like he'd got that piece of the jigsaw and a whole lot of other things that I've been struggling with and wrestling with connected and so I, I just really loved that that idea and, and as someone who you know as he said I'm Australian so the idea of going home and arriving is something that's quite 
quite very real to me and you know this sense of being away from home and then arriving back at home um I said well let's play with that and so it became a well it became a blog that never was a blog because the blog became a discussion paper that was never a discussion paper because the discussion paper became a book hmm. so it's really really lovely and and we just ended up doing this by track changes and Skype calls and every now and again meeting meeting together but it slowly emerged into something that's yeah yielded this what people call the yellowest book of the year <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's actually nice to hear that twitter can be used for something good you know <laughs> it's like a... Oh, yeah, I owe a lot to twitter <laughs> well I, <laughs> I mean i i i've i've read the book and i think the book is is is, is excellent i've really enjoyed um reading and it's nice to hear the idea of kind of where arrival came from and it's nice to hear this kind of um this way that it kind of just came up in conversation and it's almost then a, a word and a phrase that you can kind of mm -hmm. grasp and hold on to and you understand that that's the that's kind of well that's where you want to get to at the end essentially mm -hmm. so yeah. let's 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 take a step back then and then kind of okay what do we when we say arrival what do we mean by sort of the, the concept uh -huh. So this, the key thing, and this is a key argument of the book, it's that there's a dual concept. Even though Arrival is the one that's on the cover, it very much has a dual concept and that the latter half of that is making ourselves at home. Mm. So the idea of Arrival is a material sufficiency, that countries uh, have enough in terms of enough wealth in the financial sense, enough resources in, in the terms of you know, just physical infrastructure and resources and natural resources and so on around them. They have enough. And in that sense, they've arrived. Mm. But as we see so often in in those sorts of countries, just having enough at the macro sense, on, you know, on average, doesn't mean that everything is sorted. Mm. And there's still a project to, to undertake in terms of making sure that people and communities and regions themselves have enough. And we call that project now it's time to make ourselves at home. So it's, it's the arrival and making ourselves at home. And they're, they're different concepts, but deeply, deeply related. Mm. And, and so the idea of arrival is, is sort of the first half of that. But in a way, the more interesting, more uh, future-orientated, more hopeful prospect is what's offered by an economic model or an economic system or a policy system that's geared up to making ourselves at home. And that means focusing much more proactively on sharing those resources, making sure everyone's included, that everyone has enough to get by, but also in terms of how we cherish the resources. And it's things like shifting to a circular economy, reusing, recycle, shifting to renewables, designing businesses differently. So we're not just throwing away and wasting those resources, but saying, well, let's, we've got enough of them here, but let's make the most of them and keep them in circulation and so on. So there's some of the, the key concepts, but the, the duality of the two terms is really important. So, so this kind of the first step is for is for economies to um, appreciate and acknowledge that they've arrived. That's kind of the first bit, and then the following on from that is like, okay, well then, how what the policies, practices that we need to put in place to make ourselves at home? Yeah, yeah, entirely, entirely. And I think, I mean, you can the arrival aspect. We talk about this towards the end of the book. We try to tease out how might one know when when one has arrived, and, and in one sense, we're a little bit hesitant because we don't feel well, who who are Jeremy and I. So we say, well, here are some ideas mm. of how that conversation might go, and we look, for example, literally at do do countries or economies have enough steel, for example, or enough energy and smarter scientists and engineers than Jeremy and I are turning their attention to modeling that and saying, well, here, here's the amount of energy you need, here's the amount of steel in circulation that an economy needs. And so once you get to that point, well, yes, in a material sense, you've got enough. Mm. Another way of looking at it is 
the point where more and more growth starts to bring less and less benefit. Uh, you know, diminishing marginal returns is a concept that economic students would learn in Economics 101, and that's so prevalent across so many aspects of economic growth that it brings literally brings less bang for our buck. And so at early stages of economic development, uh, when countries are increasing and delivering on material needs, more growth really does matter. But at a certain point, those, those returns to growth start to tail off and, and so the benefits get fewer and fewer. And so finding that sort of transition point is another aspect of where you might understand the point of arrival to be. Mm. So in a way, at that, that juncture, growth has done its job. Mm. Growth has done the benefits that we, we needed for an economy and society. Okay, it's enough. Let's turn up our, our job now to a different purpose, that of making ourselves at home. And another way we look at it is actually where it gets worse than just diminishing marginal returns, but actually some really counterproductive, deleterious impacts come into play. And, and we quote Herman Daly, who's a former economist at the World Bank, and he talks about this idea of uneconomic growth, where we enter a terrain where so much harm is being done in the pursuit of more growth, that sort of frantic pushing down on the pedal <laughs> just to get more and more growth one, out of an economy that doesn't need it, but also out of an economy that's not necessarily yielding it anymore. And and we talk, we unpack that a little bit in social policy terms. There's a, there's a phrase that we came across and found really, really useful. So we use it as a framing, this idea of failure demand, that so much of what social policy, so much social policy that's undertaken by various governments, whether it's through the criminal justice system or accident and emergency or top up of in, um, poverty wages through in-work tax credits and so on. So much of that is a, is a reflection of our failure to create an economy that's making itself at home, that's delivering sufficient and good lives for people. And so, so much of that failure demand is really uneconomic, that it's growth that's driven by an economic model that's not delivering the goods. There's a parallel to that in environmental thinking of this notion of defensive expenditures. Mm. There's so much um, of how we react to cleaning up floods or higher, higher um, pollution premium, uh, insurance premiums or asthma treatment because of pollution on our streets and so on. A lot of that is defensive expenditure because of harm we've done to the environment. And there's actually a really lovely individual uh, equivalent of that too from Sergei Latouche, the, the French eco political economist. And he has a phrase um, that I found just beautiful actually, but really sad. Uh, consolation goods and he talks about the consolation goods industry and, and then when you look at one you know my, my own life even it's like an onion when you start looking at the world through these terms thinking about failure demand or defensive expenditures or consolation goods you see it everywhere and I mean I I know that on Friday night last week I'd had a pretty stressful odd week and I sat down with a friend at the pub on Friday night and you know straight for the bottle of of red wine I was consoling myself after a really stressful, um, quite difficult week. And, and so you do see that across a whole lot of, of, of evidence. And it just it starts to add up to a picture where we've got an economic system that is no longer delivering the goods, but actually going into the risk of quite profound harm on people and planet, on communities. Hmm. Well, one of the really strong things about this book that I found was it's, it's kind of empirical basis and its empirical foundation i mean the number of footnotes in this book is extraordinary i was always having to go i have a tendency to over reference i'm afraid <laughs> this is us cutting it down too and i guess that reflects that we just sorry to interrupt you, no, no, no. you but 
mean, it really it does reflect that we are we're really standing on the shoulders of a lot of other people's work and weaving that together. Very very in debt to scholars and academics and activists who have gone before, and 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 so yeah, obviously the, the footnotes are. Our attempt to pay homage to, to them and recognise their work. <laughs> it's amazing though. What you do is you end up generating this huge long reading list of stuff that you have, that you're like, "Wow, that sounds very interesting." Oh, that sounds really interesting. You end up being like, "Yeah," and it's almost was a huge long list of homework that I've now got after reading this oh, book. No. <laughs> well, hopefully enjoyable homework. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, in terms of em empirical focus, then maybe to give it a, a bit of flavour there as well. Do you kind of have any examples of of countries that you think? have sort of arrived or kind of on the cusp of arrive or acknowledge they've arrived? Uh -huh. So, well, I mean, no country um, really is at the point of acknowledging it. But we, we talk about a couple of different countries. Actually, Jeremy added it up. He says we've got examples from over 30 different countries <laughs> of different policies or practices or, or statistics or so on. So it's quite quite a good terrain we're, we're dancing on. But in terms of, of countries specifically, we looked at the, our two respective countries where we, we both grew up. And I grew up in Australia, one of, you know, the, on per capita terms, one of the, the richest countries in the world, so much wealth and resources, and yet it's still just pushing down on that pedal frantically to mm. get more and more growth out. And so that's a country that massively has arrived and yet and we see this in its preparedness to open more coal mines uh that it definitely is not recognizing that it's there it's not turning its attention to making itself at home it's got huge inequalities and you see that with um treatment of indigenous communities of refugees and asylum seekers and particularly not cherishing the resources it's got and you see that with Australia's environmental impact as well and so that's a country that is ripe for waking up and saying mm. hey we you know, they probably say, hey, mate, we've got enough. <laughs> now let's make ourselves at home. And whereas Jeremy, though, grew up in Madagascar and, and, and like other low-income countries, Madagascar certainly could do with a lot more in terms of the sort of traditional growth sense. I mean, in order to le increase the standard of living of communities that Jeremy was gr growing up with and, and his friends there, they do need more. The sad thing is that if countries like Australia don't, cut them some slack and literally make ecological room for them. Madagascar's going to have a, a fighting chance of increasing their material living standards. So there is a question of global balance here. The other two countries that we, we looked at were Japan and, and Costa Rica. And so Japan in the sense that it hasn't had GDP growth in the last few decades. And, and mainstream economists have been sort of failing about and, and wringing their arms and saying this is a lost decade. Whereas some some other commentators, in, including you know, former financial, current Financial Times correspondent from Japan, you know, so from that that fairly one might say mainstream school, are saying actually it hasn't been a disaster in Japan. Uh, Japan's got very good health, got high life expectancy. They're, they're relatively good in terms of a whole range of SDG indicators mm. and human development indicators. But they haven't acknowledged that they've arrived. And they, they so they're still pushing down on that pedal, running faster on that treadmill. And so they haven't yet made themselves at home. And, and there are examples. I mean, Japan is infamous for its lack of work-life work balance, for stress, mm. gender inequality, and so on. And some of those statistics, I think, point to the fact that it's a country that is in denial of the need to make itself at home. But they're also then a possibility that it can survive without GDP growth in the traditional sense and what it really needs to do is instead of just trying to 
push down and get more and more growth. They need to embrace that they have got enough wealth and resources. And then Costa Rica is another country that, that we look at. And it's Costa Rica is a bit of a, a darling in some of these conversations because it's relatively successful, not perfect by any means, but relatively successful in delivering fairly high levels of human well-being without putting huge pressure on the planet. I mean, it's a sort of a middle, high to middle income country. It's in process of joining the OECD. So it's fairly wealthy in traditional GDP sense of the term. But what it's amazing at is really doing things that one would suggest is the prospect of making itself a home. So the way it's embracing the importance of shifting to renewable, encouraging biodiversity, its preventative health system, its that focus on education, it doesn't have a military, so it's not spending loads of money on it and are being armed forces. There are hints in Costa Rica that suggest here's what a country that is making itself at home could look like. So mm. neither of them are the perfect prototype, but what we get from looking across these sort of countries are a sense of the possibility and the, the potential that if we actually proactively weave this together, then it, then it is possible. Yeah. So, I mean, is this kind of like... What do you think then in terms of maybe like the UK and their possibility or how close, you know, how close are we to, to, to something that, you know, that's happening in Japan and Costa Rica and stuff like that? Or are we so far away, it's not even worth discussing at this very moment? Well, I mean, in a, in a sense of arrival, I mean, the UK definitely mm. is, a, is a country that has arrived. I mean, sixth richest country in the world, got a ton of wealth and resources. I mean, in, so in that sense, we've arrived. Mm but we patiently are not recognising it and certainly not making ourselves at home. And, and that shows, I think that underscores really the importance of the dual concept that mm. arrival on its own is not enough. The key thing is to make ourselves at home and to say to people who are turning to food banks or communities in post-industrial towns where they're struggling to get by, well, it's, it's, isn't everything great? The UK has arrived. I mean, their, their answer would be, I think, entirely entirely reasonable. And so there are probably some places in the UK that haven't yet arrived. What that reflects, though, is the UK's inability to share its resources mm. on a spatial sense and, and, across, and across communities. And we see that in just the way the UK's economic system is designed in a way that does siphon wealth up to those at the, at the very top. But we also see the sense of failure demand in the UK. The UK state spends a lot of resources and money not particularly successfully, but trying to mitigate for an economic model that's not making itself a home. And we see that through the extent of housing benefits because house prices are too high. We see that in the extent of um, topping up poverty wages. And, and we see it in an environmental sense as well. I mean, so much being spent in UK hospitals because of asthma, because mm. of kids walking to school on, on in streets that are polluted. And again, it's like an onion, layers and layers of this failure demand defensive expenditure. And the UK, if we, and we've got some statistics in the, in the book, and, and one of them from memory, I think, is a one in five pounds that the UK government spends is down to the impact of poverty and trying to respond to the impact of poverty. Now, there's huge potential in that. If the UK was to make itself at home more proactively, then we actually wouldn't have to spend so much of that effort and wealth and resources in terms of cleaning and fixing up and, you know, that sticking plaster activity because we'd be delivering for people first time around. And that's the hopeful prospect of arrival. It just it gives everyone an easier ride. Yeah. And I think that the making yourself at home is, is one of the interests, one of 
kind of the most interesting things I find to think about this book. And I've got a couple of questions of that coming on later. And I think that's kind of what sets it apart from a lot of other books within this kind of uh, this field mm -hmm. of like kind of alternative economics. But what would you kind of say? I mean, apart from this is obviously the most incredible yellow cover I've ever seen. <laughs> um, yellow <laughs> Apart from that, like, I mean, because, they're, they're, yeah, the last kind of, you know, last few years have been these kind of um, books that have come up about alternative economic models or alternative ways of organising, alternative organisations, kind of, what would you say that you're, you know, pretty crude way of putting it, but you're kind of USP with the book, you yeah, know? And we're completely in debt to all that work that's already been been done mm. because because I think arrival and um, the book arrival, rather than the concept that but the book arrival, what it really does is weaves together some of that emerging exciting literature and and presents it. I hope in a way that's not expert, that's fairly mm. accessible and fairly lively and interesting and compelling for people to want to dive into. And so, I had actually when I was writing it, I had in mind a, a reader who's a, a friend of mine who's a medical physicist. So yeah, quite interested in the world, very, very bright, but not steeped in this particular literature. And so, to have, so almost we wanted to be a bit of the bridge to the, from that literature and some of those more dedicated books to a slightly more mainstream, wider, interested audience. And I think also that we, what we do quite unashamedly is point out just in a way how daft the current system is with all the waste that we're spending and all the effort and all the political manoeuvring and all the fallout from that that comes from the current system at the extent to which we're, you know that that sticking plaster system that's almost the best we've been told we can hope for and it's just i mean it's such an inefficient way of, of running an economy and running a society and so i think we point we go quite large on that because i think that's where we can start make, making links to other other thinkers and people from other perspectives who might be interested in well maybe, maybe the state could have an easier run or focus on some of the cha unavoidable challenges if we could save it from having to spend so much effort attending to things that actually if we design the economy differently we could avoid mm. those, some of those challenges um, so so for example i mean the the changing demographics the government's always going to have to be attending to that but we shouldn't have a government that has has to top up people's wages because business don't pay enough mm. for people to live on so we could just do things so much smarter more efficiently and and just be less less daft about it yeah. and that's i think one of the the I think I hope that comes through fairly clearly in the book that it's almost this exasperation of just how yeah we're being pretty silly here we can we can fix it. Yeah, I mean this is a, is a nice book in terms of the, the the first kind of half of it is quite a depressing read, uh -huh. uh, <laughs> which is good, which is good because uh -huh. it's then is counterbalanced by the second half, which has a lot more of optimism and hope, which is also nice because a lot of books within this kind of sphere often end at that halfway point that say uh -huh. okay well like i mean the world is really you know really screwed at the moment and <laughs> here's all this data that shows that and now it's kind of like well good luck to it you know um so it's quite yeah. nice to have that that kind of balance oh, we're, we're completely heartened by the fact that this isn't a step into the unknown and and i often refer to these sort of chinks of light there are so many examples of what making ourselves at home means. We don't need to imagine this up. Mm. What we need to do is maybe scale it up and scale it across. And, and I guess that's one of the other contributions we've tried to make. Um, while, while not being experts in, in systems change, but we do try to offer some of the lessons from systems change thinking and, and evidence of ha actually how might we go about learning from all those amazing examples and helping start to proactively 
build a different economic system from wherever you are in that system, whatever your sphere of influence is. Hmm. And I think some, a lot of the, a lot of the books mainly looking at kind of like uh, the ecological concerns, issues to do with climate change, which is obviously incredibly important. But maybe now to kind of turn our discussion around uh, the main sort of focus of this podcast, not just alternative economic models and alternatives out there, but particularly around the future of work. Um, and you've got a couple of um, uh, good chapters in the book, uh, mm-hmm. or sections of chapters in the book that deal specifically with that. And some really interesting statistics where, um, like, for example, you indicate this crossover, obviously, between climate change, where you cite this study showing that if working hours are reduced by 0.5%, though one quarter to a half of global warming would be eliminated. I mean, it's quite an alarming statistic, this. So maybe then, um, how do you think this kind of obsession or fascination with growth has affected individuals, particularly around work? And and, and I think there's a huge connection there because what we see through work is how failure to make ourselves at home is translating in the workplace on people's lives. And we've got this, you know, people being coming, people become like just at the beck and call of the production system. I often describe them as they're, they're just similar to just in time inventory mm. uh, on, on demand when businesses require and then, and then disposable when they're no longer needed. And, th- and then we point to writers like David Harvey or Carl Polanyi and saying, you know, just this, how harmful that is when you treat people as just another commodity as, as just-in-time inventory. but And yet we see that in this effort to squeeze out more GDP from the current economic system. All sorts of damaging decisions are taken to, that impact people, workers' lives because of that, whether it's pushing down on union rights, whether it's undermining health and safety at workplaces, whether it's um, enforcing sort of unpaid overtime. I mean, this cult of busyness as well, it's all part of that same picture of an economy that's not yet making itself at, at home. Another aspect, of course, is how that so many jobs that we that are that are highly paid in the current economic system are ones that are really not conducive to making <laughs> ourselves at home. And, and we see, you know, it's the advertising executives or it's the corporate lawyers who are helping to big companies to do their tax evasion, or or it's a, it's the people who are sort of, you know, the um, folks who are just really propagating this current system who get often get the most money. And so that in terms of remuneration through through work, there's a big imbalance between what the, the current marketplace is rewarding and the sort of work and activity that we need that will be much more helpful to an economy that's making itself at home. So there's there's loads and loads of, of layers layers to that. One of the exciting levers that we point to in terms of an economy that's making itself at home is sharing work better and having shorter working weeks and so on. I mean, we've got this huge imbalance where some people are working crazy hours to make loads of money. Others are working crazy hours to just keep their families above the breadline, whether they're doing having you know, three jobs or on fairly low paid minimal wage jobs just to keep their food on the table. And then other people are not getting enough money. So they might be working, but they're only getting the odd three hour shift at a call centre, for example. And then, so we basically we're really bad at distributing the available work. I think there's always going to be work. There's always going to be plenty to do in the economy and in communities. But it's how we share that work that really matters. And, and as you've already hinted to, the prospect of short, shorter working weeks does offer a way to get around some of those conundrums, give people a bit of a chance to take a breath, to invest more in community life and family life, but also give people who don't have enough hours a bit more of involvement in the in the labour market. And and there's 
that's a really exciting, I'd say, quite fundamental pillar of an economy making itself at home. Because mm. I mean, a lot of the discussion around around the future of work and and kind of what you've uh, spoken about in the book is is around kind of technological revolutions and technology mm-hmm. uh, either kind of trying to make our life easier so we can have shorter working weeks, mm. we can have more leisure time, etc. What are we going to do with this leisure time? Mm-hmm. Um, or technology is a way of degrading workers' rights and and mm. Uh, increasing the drudgery of work and stuff like that. And I just kind of want to know sort of what, what, what you think of in terms of the prospects there in the future around automation, yeah, technology. Yeah. Technology too, of course, also just increases this sort of cult of busyness that people mm. use. They're having to be responsive across 20 different platforms rather than just, just writing letters as we may have done 30 or 40 years ago. Technology, I think the, the big thing that almost surprises us is that the lack of conversation about what sort of technology is useful. I mean, it's almost... We almost seem to have slipped in into a sense of inevitability about technological change that, well, it's coming, it's this tidal wave, there's nothing we can do about it. it it's like gravity and we just have to try and respond to it maybe and, and ameliorate the impacts as, as best we can in the best best of the circumstances and that's really surprising because we've got a good example and and we talk about this briefly in the book there is an example where society says to technology and to technological developments well wait a minute we want to assess them in terms of their benefit on society and whether the cost is worth it and whether they're going to be make a useful contribution and and that's through the the medical system Uh, England has the National Institute of Clinical Excellence and so when there's a new medicine or a new new technology in medicine it goes through a process of talking to patients groups and of medical experts and really spending a lot of time deliberating is this going to be useful? Is this something that that it will improve things? Is it worth the money? And yet, we're, and, and I think that's a really lovely model. And yet, with other technologies, we just seem to sit on our hands and say, nothing we can do. And and to me, it's a real puzzle to me. Uh, but there are examples now of of people saying, here are some maybe some charters or some lines in the sand that we'd want in terms of allowing technologies to to come on board. Some are brilliant. But some will have very scary unintended consequences. And, I mean, you only need to look at 3D printing. Uh, it was in the news today here in, in Scotland about some students who are prototyping, developing prosthetic limbs for people through 3D printing. But one, remember one of the first things that was printed on a 3D printer was a shotgun by a student in the, in the U.S. And so just being alert to the very mixed possibility of technologies and having a societal conversation and rather than just as we currently seem to be doing and sitting on our hands and responding to it rather than proactively shaping and directing technological development I think is a is where we'll get into the exciting terrain and are definitely not denying the prospect of technology. Yeah I think it's um that's one of the things I thought was very interesting about the book. That that particular example was something which I've I've put my sticky notes next to, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> as a way of trying to rethink the way that we're, when you know, technology is not going to be good or bad. It's kind of what we make of it ourselves, and this is kind of it's part just, of. It's like growth, actually, Hugh, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Growth no longer good, but it's what we make of it. Who gets it? How we created it? How we distribute it? Yeah, it's always need a much more nuanced conversation. Yeah, exactly. Like in your yeah, exactly in your book where you say, well, not all growth is bad. It's about the management of it. It's about how we can, um, you know, manage it to make ourselves feel at home. To use you know to to use your language, yeah. and I guess we we've kind of been over the course of our discussion, been kind of tiptoeing around the the lessons and the kind of opportunities for the future and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, 
what I really found quite interesting and, and refreshing about this book was the was the the, the answer the kind of the how stuff right uh-huh. it's the okay right we um countries need to kind of recognize they're arrived and then establish policies and practices to make themselves at home um and instead of leaving that for the reader to decide what that might be you actually offer some some concrete proposals so maybe we could just kind of you know what sort of examples do you have that do you want to talk about Sure. So, I mean, we, there's a whole lot of spheres of change where where different activities and different practices need to need to happen. Uh, it has to be change in community groups, has to be change in teaching of, of economics and other other core subjects, has to be change in how politicians, what decisions they make, has to be change in the way businesses do their work and also how individuals live their life and the questions they ask and how they shop and invest and, and spend their time. So it's it's almost it's sort of across the whole spectrum. Mm change needs to happen just but just to pick out some a couple of my some of my favorites for me at the political level governments have got to start prioritizing much more than gdp they've got to really hold up a broader definition of progress than just how fast is your gdp growing i think a lot of policymakers and politicians get that and i think what holds them back is the mainstream media conversation Every morning after the Chancellor or the Finance Minister or Treasurer in whatever constituency or jurisdiction they're in, whenever they bring a budget down, the first question when they go on to national radio the next morning will be, what's this going to do for our growth? We need those economics editors to be saying, right, great budget, Minister. What's this going to do for inequality? What's this going to do for people turning to food banks tonight? What's this going to do for future generations to impact on the environment? So there's a there's sort of a messy complex there between the media and policymakers. But we are seeing some politicians starting to recognise the need to do things differently. And linked to that is this idea of long-term budgeting as well. It's not good enough just to have policy cycles that only focus on short-term cost-benefit. We need to look... 10, 20 years hence. And there's a quote we have in the book from First Nations communities where they say, what sort of ancestors do you want to be? And so I think we need politicians to think about that a lot more. There's a lot of really great examples of businesses who are delivering sort of economic activity and sharing of the benefit of that economic activity in a way that does hint at making ourselves at home. And so often those businesses really have that different purpose in their DNA. And so businesses that are cooperative whether it's community or worker co-ops or their social enterprises or community interest companies or benefit corporations. There's this, it's so broad now it's being called the fourth sector of these different business models that are designed in a way to, yes, be commercially viable and, and to be feasible in the sort of traditional sense, but to use profit-making as a vehicle rather than a destination. And I'm really, really excited by the prospect of that, that trend and, and that shift. So just seeing businesses use their supply chains uh, and really concertedly make sure that work is fulfilling and has a sense of purpose and pays enough and that the benefits go to workers and communities, not just to remote shareholders, I think is really exciting. And and also then in, in terms of communities, I mean, one of the most, it's a really simple, simple example, but one of the most exciting when I talk of chinks of light, I find it hard to get away from community gardens. And there's a beautiful community garden around the corner from me. And every time I walk past that, particularly on a Saturday afternoon, in a way, it just it fills me with, with hope, if, if that's not too sentimental sense. Because these people, they're not out shopping. 
they're working together, they're collectively providing for food, they're valuing each other because of who they are, not how much they make or any other sort of status orientated. And, and so in a way, really small example, but those sorts of activities and initiatives, they are the chinks of light of an economy that makes itself at home. Mm. And so how much of these kind of ideas are also like the bigger kind of macro ideas, how much are they kind of founded on on like need for like multilateralism, for example? Because we're kind of seeing a lot of that declining now, um, a lot of kind of more internal politics. I mean, stuff like Brexit, Trump, you know, all these kind of um, these issues or whatever that we're facing, challenges to multilateralism. You know, how much is can individual economies do this or, or does there need to be some cooperation and, and alliances between them? So, I mean, we absolutely need countries to work together because it'll be a very, very lonely journey um, for one country to chart this different course on their own, particularly when so many of our mainstream macro sort of big multilateral institutions would also cry that they're being heretical mm. and they're, you know, almost say that, you know, that they're being crazy. I mean, this is, the, the irony is, though, of course, that we've got all countries signed up to the sustainable development goals that do set out a different different picture of, of how we should be delivering the economy and delivering for people and planet. One of the exciting, again, a chink of light, if I can keep using that term, is a, a project led now by the Scottish government uh, called Wellbeing Economy Governments. And it's a Scottish government saying, and the governments that have joined them, which are at the moment Iceland and New Zealand, and hopefully soon to be joined by a few other countries. And these are co governments that have said, we want to learn how to build a well-being economy, deliver for our citizens and for the planet in a much better, richer way that's not simply faster, faster GDP growth that's aligned to the SDGs. But we don't have all the answers. We're trying. We've got some ideas, but we want to work with others to do so. Um, and that little project was launched at the OECD's Wellbeing Forum in November last year with Joseph Stiglitz and chief economists from respective governments. And it's a, it's a really exciting a uh, tiny but exciting initiative, I think, of governments saying what's well, not just about the clubs like the G7 or the G20, where the entry ticket is literally how big's your GDP. <laughs> where but these are, this is a club of of countries and governments that are saying let's work together to build an economy for our citizens that that's fit for the future. Mm. And and again, I think that's a sort of exciting collaboration and also humility that we need um, if we're able to track tackle all these challenges that. The depressing first half of the book sets out. <laughs> that, that is an exciting, yeah, that's exciting. That was one of the kind of lasting ideas of, of, of hope there, where maybe there are ways of countries coming together, have shared common interests and understandings and stuff like that as a way to really change the way that they, they think about how the economy should be managed. Maybe the, okay, the kind of sort of last question, and a lot of our Futures of Work podcasts kind of end with this question of, about, because um, we're interested in agency, um, oh. And so kind of then as 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 us, as individuals, as activists, as academics, as researchers, whatever, kind of what would you say, what, what, what can we do? What, what would be the next step? What if, you know, if we woke up tomorrow morning, what, what would, should we do as individuals? I think actually the biggest thing people can do is keep talking, mm. keep the conversation going, because the big constraint we have on this agenda becoming a reality is, if you'll forgive the clunky term, the narrow cognitive bandwidth that we've been stuck in. I mean, we're, as we, you know, as I said earlier, we're told by the media you're heretical if you talk about a, a 
government that's not number one priority is delivering more and more GDP. I, I get told that I'm being naive or a fluffy bunny um, <laughs> by mainstream economists when I say we need to look at doing the economy differently and listen to the science. So I think actually more than anything, it's the conversations that we have with people and to just open up imaginations that an economy that is delivering for people and planet is possible and it's exciting. I mean, back in back in 1983, Ronald Reagan said, there is no limit to growth because there's no limit to our imagination and, and human ingenuity. And I think I'd like now it's time to sort of flip Reagan's comment on his head and actually say there is no limit to designing an economy that's better than growth because there is no limit to our imagination. But then currently the limit to our imagination is this narrow cognitive bandwidth. And so the best thing people can do is is break out of that and just expand the conversation with their friends, their family, their colleagues, their students, and help roll out this discussion so that people see it as something that's that's not heretical, that's not fluffy bunny, that's not naive, <laughs> but actually is the conversation that is right for the for the future of our of people and planet. Mm. That's wonderful. That's a great yeah, that's a great last message. And thank you very much. Um for coming and speaking to me today and and the book which is i can i highly recommend Absolute pleasure. okay thanks very much <laughs> really grateful thanks ever so much Thank you, you.